Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail the Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our citation classics, and in particular, you are tuned into our trauma citation classics. We know, everybody, it has been a little while since we have put some episodes out. But we are now back and rowing again. I'm actually recording this uh, this intro in an airport. So if you hear the airport in the background, that is why. But nonetheless, this is another great episode in store talking about compartment syndrome and some of the uh, some of the good articles about compartment syndrome. And I really like the way they actually broke this episode down and how they structured it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hello and welcome to another round of Citation Classics, uh, another adventure in trauma. Here we're going to be doing our last kind of foundational um, lit review where we're looking at compartment syndrome. We're looking forward to next time diving into some fracture specific guidance, but here we're talking about compartment syndrome. It's a hugely important topic in trauma uh, and it's something that you'll be particularly as as an intern or, and definitely throughout your residency and as an attending that you're going to be looking at and concerned about and scared about the, the entire time. If you're not scared of it, then you, then you might miss it. And that would be devastating. Uh, so we'll kind of go into a little bit of some of those foundational literature that has given us some of the numbers and some of the things that we consider. Um, just kind of just to increase that general understanding of, of how we got to where we are uh, in evaluating compartment syndrome. And so as part of this, kind of like last time, we, I think we really enjoyed having the, the, the patient presentations or the patient of the sample patients. And so we'll have a pretty simple one, straightforward one. Here we all have a 24-year-old male, status post an MVC. He came in with a, uh, at least the orthopedic injury of a tibial fracture, a tibial shaft fracture, diaphyseal tibial fracture. And we have our first patient will be the 24 year old male. He's awake and he's a splinted and he's waiting uh, operation tomorrow or the day after. And we're doing serial compartment exams. He's interactive, able to, to talk with you. And then our second patient will be the same exact patient, except you know, he's intubated and sedated in the ICU. He's got something else going on, um, but we're keeping an eye on him and evaluating him and he is unable to interact with the examination. All right, without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump in. My name's Olu, and I'm going to be talking about this paper titled Compartment Monitoring in Tibial Fractures, The Pressure Threshold for Decompression by McQueen and Court Brown. It makes sense that we're talking about compartment syndrome in our last foundational episode because it's one of the big topics in orthopedic surgery. And this happens when there's an increased pressure in a compartment, which reduces the perfusion of that limb. And it's something that we're always told as medical students or even as a resident on the orthopedic service to have a high index of suspicion for whenever you see someone with a high energy trauma. But this could also happen to someone who has low energy trauma as well. And it's an orthopedic emergency because if you don't catch compartment syndrome on time, it could have devastating consequences. Like if there's if there's no perfusion of a limb force for a while, it could lead to permanent muscle death. It could lead to nerve damage, 
you could also even have renal failure from all the myoglobin that's released into into the bloodstream and so we want to catch this on time and treat it definitively and the treatment is a fasciotomy to rapidly relieve those compartment syndromes and so on one hand we have a condition that has serious consequences if not treated and on the other hand we have a treatment fasciotomy which is very invasive and is by no means pretty and you can see what it looks like on the right side right hand picture on the slide and this combination really makes us or puts us in a peculiar situation we have to ask the question how do we diagnose compartment syndrome to ensure that we catch most of them if not all of them but at the same time not put people through unnecessary fasciotomies because a fasciotomy is not a minor procedure and that's what the authors of this paper are trying to answer and hopefully at the end of this we'll have a better idea of what the best way to do this is and so previously surgeons were performing fasciotomies based on measurements of absolute compartment pre pressure in the tissues some surgeons would use a compartment value of 30 millimeters of mercury some would use 40 some 45 and so if they're using 30 for example anybody that has a absolute pressure of above 30 would get a fasciotomy but what happened is that they realized that some of these individuals could have recovered without getting a fasciotomy and they also realized that there's no single correct threshold pressure for all individuals um, but Whitesides et al. looked at it from a different perspective and was considering relative pressures instead of absolute pressure. Um, and the reason they did this is because they realized that ischemia really only occurs when the pressure in the compartment rises within 10 to 30 millimeters of mercury of the diastolic blood pressure. And so this study was designed to test that hypothesis of um, when decompression should be performed, whether it should be performed using differential pressures of less than 30 millimeters of mercury or using absolute pressures. Now moving on to the methods, it was a prospective study um, of 116 patients that had tibial diaphyseal fractures. And what they were measuring was anterior compartment pressure. And so with this, they're able to get the absolute compartment pressures. And also, they're able to record the differential pressure, which was calculated by subtracting the anterior compartment pressure from the diastolic blood pressure. And now we move on to the results. And here is, I'd like, I'd like you to just bear with me and follow me along for this result section so 50 patients had an absolute compartment pressure of greater than 30 millimeters of mercury 
and 27 patients had an absolute compartment pressure of greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. However, none of those patients had any long-term sequelae of compartment syndrome after six months. So what that means is that the fact that none of them had any long-term sequelae, including those patients who had absolute pressures above 30 and 40, shows that using absolute pressures as a threshold isn't really reliable. Those people with pressures of 35 or even 45 had, um, they had pressures above the threshold and everything still turned out fine. Um, using those thresholds, for example, 30, that means 50 patients would have had to undergo unnecessary fasciotomies, which is not ideal. And using the differential pressures, um, only two patients had differential pressures of less than 30, and those two patients underwent fasciotomies. And so what this really tells us is that absolute pressures, using absolute pressures for a threshold is an unreliable indication for the need of the need for fasciotomy. And using differential pressures in this study, there are no missed cases of compartment syndrome. So I, they kind of struck the balance of finding a way to make sure that they're not missing anybody, but also make sure that they're not they're not um, doing any unnecessary fasciotomies. Um, that also brings us to the question of how far do you push this boundary? Because now some people are saying, you know, dif differential pressures of 30 might even be too much. Maybe we should try um, and, you know, tighten that criteria a little bit. But at the same time, you don't want that criteria to be too strict and to, because if it's too strict, you might end up starting to miss some cases of fasciotomy. So that's where we are at today. And I think a lot of institutions use that number of 30 millimeters of mercury as kind of their threshold for fasciotomy. And yeah. when I say 30, I mean like differential pressures of 30, not absolute. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, this is a big a big paper kind of showing that shift between using an absolute number versus a, a relative number. So those are the kind of the two schools of thought like you were talking about. Is it, hey, any some, anyone who has a pressure over like over 30 millimeters of mercury, you, you stick a needle in, you measure it, it's a number greater than 30 to compress them. Or are you doing it relative to their diastolic pressure? And um, the fact that it has to do with tissue perfusion and ischemia, it makes sense that we would have to do it uh, in relation to the diastolic pressure. And this is a paper that really shows it very, very well. You know, they followed all of these different patients. They measured them. There were people that were above 30. They did that did not have clinical signs of of compartment syndrome, so they did not do any uh, releases. They followed them for. A significant period of time and they didn't have any any sequelae of, of compartment syndrome so we think we can high five and say those people didn't need it they had uh um some patients that required fascial release based on the clinical evaluation that that showed that the uh threshold or, or that that difference between the compartment pressure and the diastolic pressure was 
less than 30. So that way the, the compartment pressure was getting close to the diastolic. And um, those people clinically did need the, the decompression. And so this is really strong and it makes sense intuitively. And then we have a paper that also supports that idea that as the pressure approaches the diastolic pressure, um, we're, we're concerned about compartment syndrome and want to, to move forward. Um, to tie this back into our, our, um, our patient presentations, Olu. So let's say you have our 24-year-old male, tibial fracture. He's in the ICU. He's intubated, sedated. We're doing compartment checks. Your last one you did on him, um, he was starting to feel a, a little bit full, a little, a little bit firm when you were palpating him. And so you're, you're worried about it. Uh, so you talk with your chief and you guys go back up there and decide that you, you want to go ahead and do a pressure monitoring. So you're about to walk in to the ICU room. What are you going to do? All right. So this person is in the ICU, meaning, and he's intubated, so he can't really communicate with me. So first thing I'll do is check the art line and just to know what his diastolic baseline diastolic pressure is. And so that would give me something to work with when I'm measuring compartment pressures. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, because you know that once you stick a needle in him, even if he's intubated and sedated, you're adding a stimulus. And so his, his diastolic might change a little bit. So so checking before you go in is, is great. What what if, um, oh my gosh, for some reason, this guy, he, his, his art line doesn't have a great weight form or he just was thrashing around and it pulled out. What are you going to do? Um, I'll probably just recycle the cuff. You know, yeah. just just yeah. to get new numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, get get some get some hot data, and get mm -hmm. them the latest and greatest. Uh, perfect. So, what about for the guy that's awake? You know, you're you're about to go in. You were concerned about him last time. You're going back. You you know you're you're getting ready to go back with your chief. You walk back in. What are you What are you gonna do? For the guy on the floor, um, I think just remembering that compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. And so I would trust my physical exam more. So I would do an exam on the guy on the floor, um, gauge his responses and um, make my decision based on based on that. Boom. Oh, man, I couldn't even get you with a trick question. Nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. That that's we're going down this this whole thing about um, compartment measurements and pressures and all that. It's hugely important to remember this is a clinical diagnosis. If their pain requirements going up and up and up, if you're doing pain, if they have if you like wiggle their toe for them and they have excruciating pain, you don't need to stop and check that guy. You can do it. You can do a compartment pressure test in the OR right before you unzip them, just try kind of as an academic exercise, but. You document your clinical exam. You're concerned about it. You go in and help that person. Um, that is that's excellent. Right on. All right, let's let's move forward. So we're we're gonna be doing the next one is the is the measurement of intracompartmental pre, intracompartmental pressure, a comparison of the slit catheter side ported needle and the simple needle. This one's kind of just a maybe a little bit of a historical perspective or just kind of a general idea of kind of different ways. Uh, when I was when I was looking at this, I was kind of interested to see that there's different ways of measuring compartment. I, you know, in, in my uh, institution, we typically use the side ported needle. And so it was interesting to take a look and see this. And so basically um, this is a paper by Moet et al in a journal of bone and joint surgery, JBGS back in 1993. Um, and it basically took a look at uh, compartment pressure measured three different ways. So um, you either can use a 
uh, a simple 18 gauge needle. That's kind of how it initially was started to be raised. And you're using like a, a mercury column, basically mercury in a, in a U-shaped tube that measures the pressure as compared to the atmospheric pressure. You also can use a slit catheter, and that's simply a kind of piece of plastic with a slit cut in the side of it. And you can stick it in. What's nice about that one is actually is an indwelling catheter. So often you'll see people using that for our studies um, into compartment syndrome. So it's an important thing to understand how that works. Uh, and then what we're kind of seeing more often these days is the side ported needle. So that's the simple as a, a beveled needle, just like a normal needle, except it also has an opening along the shaft of the needle. Um, and that can be really useful as whereas the slit catheter can can be indwelling it's only indwelling in one compartment whereas the side port catheter you can actually um, take out and use for multiple uh, compartments in the same person which is really handy and we'll talk about kind of and this this paper was really good at kind of looking at what are the values are they comparable are they not uh, how far can we trust all of these different uh, all these different methods so they did is they wanted to determine the relative accuracy of different pressures measuring uh, of different pressure measuring devices. They used eight different dog legs. They used the interior lateral compartment. You'll see in all of these um, studies, they use a lot of uh, canine models and, and particularly look at the anterior lateral compartment for anyone who's curious. They basically they put in a, an 18 gauge catheter and they connected it to a liter of normal saline and they raised that normal saline uh, from first at the level of the leg, and then they raised it 10 centimeters, and they raised it another 10 centimeters, and they raised another. So they did 10 different times until it was um, 100 centimeters above the leg. So we obviously have a, a kind of very linear linear increase in pressure, or um, as far as insufflating or um, adding fluid to the leg. And then they measured uh, the pressure. They measured it um, with an 18 gauge needle. They left a slit catheter remained in dwelling or and they also uh, measured it with a side port needle so the here's a the, if you're looking on youtube or on video you can see a they're very nice graph uh, but I, i'll try my best to, to paint you a word picture basically it meant they, they're taking a look at everything every the both this or all the side ported needle the simple needle and the slit catheter they all had a very nice linear increase um, in pressures that mirrored kind of that, that reference line as it goes up. Taking a look at the, the simple needle, that 18 gauge needle, consistently overestimated the pressure. Uh, even at the column height of 10 all the way up to 100, it, it overestimated the, the pressure. Whereas taking a look at the side port needle and the slit catheter, those lines actually mirrored each other very closely. They're, they're very consistent across. And so actually it found that the simple needle um, was significantly different than the side port and the slit catheter. And they saw no significant difference between the measurements of the slit catheter and the side port needle. Uh, so the two things that we still kind of use, are one, the, the slit catheter, um, more for research purposes in the side port needle, which we typically use uh, in the uh, in the hospital, at least in my experience, uh, both correlated very closely with each other. So some conclusions, this is really just, it's really kind of something to keep in mind. Um, it's nice that the slit, cath slit catheter can be indwelling because of the narrow tip. It can, the, the concern is that it might clot off and you might stop getting good readings. Uh, the side port kind of is the gold standard. It's reusable for each compartment. Uh, we know that any research or look using this, we can suspect that any research 
utilized uh, finding values um, based on slit catheter readings. We can trust that those readings are also good for our side port needle. Uh, and then the simple needle kind of at this point is kind of known in the back of our head is if maybe we're in an austere environment, we don't have anything else, we need to jerry-rig something. Um, it is something that we could do, but we know in the back of our heads that maybe it might be overestimating our, overestimating our, our values. There's also some other papers out there that mention that maybe at low pressures, it might overestimate the values and actually at high pressures, it might underestimate that value. So basically it would, it's a little bit harder to, to interpret that 18 gauge or the simple needle. So we like to use that side port. One final note is that uh, you often you'll hear people, hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna go striker these compartments. Striker's a company that typically makes the, the side port needle and the setup. Um, it doesn't have to be a striker needle. It can be a, a side port of any uh, of anything. I don't wanna think that we're married to any specific company or anything like that. Um, this is pretty straightforward. I don't think we necessarily need to go in, into our, our patient uh, presentations on this one. So we'll go ahead and just keep on moving forward. Hey everyone, I'm Bree, and I'll be going over Dr. Heckman and colleagues' 1994 paper, Compartment Pressure in Association with Closed Tibial Fractures. So we've gone over the criteria for compartment pressure a lot. We talked about how it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, and when you're looking at the patient, the patient, you're looking for kind of the five P's. So pain, pallor, pulselessness, paralysis, and paresthesias. Um, but pallor and pulselessness are typically seen in the later stages of the ischemia. Um, so the authors of this study hadn't found any previous studies on um, kind of the specific site of compartment pressure measurement um, to definitively diagnose compartment pressure um, and the variation in tissue pressures at increasing distances from the zone of injury. So that's kind of the premise that they used to form this study. So their purpose was to determine the frequency and magnitude of variations in the intracompartmental and intercompartmental pressures in patients with closed tibial fractures. Um, and they included patients that had a closed tibia fracture with or without a fibular fracture that presented within six hours of injury. And their protocol involved a physical exam looking for those five Ps that we just talked about, in addition to looking at radiographs to confirm that there was a fracture there, um, followed by reduction of the fracture and splinting. Um, and then they would measure the compartment pressure every one to two hours if the pressures were continuously rising or every four hours if the pressures were relatively low or if they were declining over time. And they defined compartment syndrome um, with their clinical evaluation and tissue pressure within 20 to 30 um, millimeters of mercury within the diastolic blood pressure. So they were able to identify 25 patients with a closed tibial fracture seen by two senior orthopedic residents at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. Um, and they were able to measure multiple sites with then 94 compartments um, between these 25 patients. And they repeated those, like I just said, uh, every one to two hours or every four hours, depending on the change in compartmental pressure over time. And they found that um, 
they needed to perform superficial posterior compartment pressures multiple times, and specifically six patients um, because they had minimally elevated pressures in all of their compartments. And diving into the results a little bit, they were able to find that there was um, declining pressures from increasing distance from the site of the fracture. So the site of the fracture um, or the site of injury was the site of the highest pressure within whichever compartment of the leg that they were measuring at that time. And the most significant effect was actually seen in the anterior and the deep posterior compartments whereas the superficial posterior compartment really didn't have any significant effect um, since it's a relatively large compartment and there's kind of a lack of proximal fascial enclosure. So overall, they concluded that there was a difference in compartmental pressures between the zone of injury and increasing distances from the site um, with the most significant findings in the deep posterior, anterior, and lateral, lateral compartments um, with very minimal differences seen in the superficial compartment. Um, and this really can be applied to our current practice um, by measuring at the site of the injury or as close to the fracture as possible, um, since there is such a high rate of ischemia and a need to go to the OR for a fasciotomy um, to prevent necrosis within that compartment. All right, perfect. Hey, I, once again, kind of what is the theme of, of this uh, round is some pretty straightforward papers that are just giving us some, some things that intuitively make sense, but it's great to have evidence and it's a, a reason to think about these things. Yeah, so we see that closer to the fracture, there's more swelling or more concern for increase in pressure. As you get further away, um, that is less. I, I thought that was what was really interesting in this one is that, that you're really worried about the anterior compartment and the deep to deep posterior compartment. Um, those tended to be higher values kind of across the board, which makes sense. They're the, the ones that are right there, right next to the, the bone that's involved. And they're a little bit smaller. Um, and it was really interesting to see that, you know, superficial posterior compartment necessarily, we're not particularly worried about that one. We can really rely on those other ones to kind of be our canaries in the coal mine. Um, so so Bree, we have our first patient. You're walking in um, and you're getting ready to, you know, you're, you're doing your examination. He's, he's maybe requiring a little bit of increased pain medications to keep his heart rate down and keep him comfortable. Um, uh, you're talking about the ICU staff. Yeah, they've, they've had to kind of do a little bit more things to help manage his, his blood pressure. Um, it just doesn't seem like he's, he's doing as well. You, you feel him. He's got firm, com, firm compartments. You want to go ahead and do your, your striker needle. Where are you going to do it? What are you going to do? Yeah. So based on what we've gone over so far, you're going to want to place your striker needle as close to the site of fracture as possible. So you can use the radiographs that you've gotten already uh, to kind of really be as specific as possible because you want to ensure that you're in that highest range of the compartmental pressure to prevent as much ischemia and necrosis as you can. And once you've identified that spot, you want to confirm it, take them into the OR and do a fasciotomy to release that compartment. Nice. What, but what if like, you know, what if the fractures like really proximal and there's like a pillow in the way or like the, the rail of the beds there. And that guy seems like he's a little bit pain. Like, what are you going to do? Like you just kind of get where you can get. 
Well, if it's really proximal, still you're going to try and use the method as best you can of being as close to the fracture as possible. Um, because yeah, as yeah. we found that as you go further and further away from the fracture, you're going to have lower pressures and you're not going to be able to prevent as much tissue death as you would if you were closer. Yeah. This is, this is, we're looking at something that's a, sur- a surgical or a, an orthopedic emergency. Like you got to, you got to get the exam that you can get and you got to, if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And so uh, take your time, make sure you're getting where you need to get. Sorry. I used the proximal humerus. We're talking about the tibia. So let's say, yeah, it, you know, that for some reason they're, they're just, they were covered in much stuff. You're going to uncover them. You're going to expose what you need to expose, get where you need to go uh, and, and get what you need to get. That's awesome. Um, all right, perfect. Let's go ahead and go to the next one. Hey everybody. It's Nick again. We're going to be talking about uh, diastolic blood pressure in patients with tibia fractures under anesthesia implications for the diagnosis of compartment syndrome. This was by Dr. Kakar et al. in the journal of orthopedic trauma. So as we've been uh, talking about, uh, compartment syndrome is a common complication of uh, tibial shaft fractures. Um, As uh, Olu was talking about, some sources have demonstrated that uh, fasciotomy should be performed uh, at 30 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Um, That's often been considered in the past, the occlusion pressure for intracompartmental microvasculature. However, as he was explaining, other sources have demonstrated uh, that Delta P is a much better tool for uh, compartment pressure measurement uh, with values less than 30 millimeters of mercury, uh, now being the kind of gold standard diagnostic. So a little bit about this study, you know, I was asking the question, how does intraoperative blood pressure compare to preoperative and postoperative measurements? Um, You know, surgeons can check the compartment pressures intraoperatively. We wanted to see, you know, if the blood pressure is decreased intraoperatively because of anesthesia, this might change how we calculate delta P. So they wanted to examine, you know, how is this delta P changing intraoperatively? So we have a prospective cohort study. Our intervention was an IM nail fixation of tibial fractures. Uh, the outcomes we were looking at were preoperative, interoperative, and postoperative blood pressure measurements. So it was actually pretty surprising results. The mean diastolic blood pressure uh, intraoperative was 18 millimeters of mercury, uh, plus or minus 13 lower um, intraoperatively uh, compared to the preoperative measurement. Uh, the difference between preoperative and postoperative diastolic blood pressure was uh, pretty low uh, at two plus or minus 13 millimeters of mercury. So what do we need to think about? So what this paper is saying, hey, is we have intraoperative blood pressures are significantly lowered by anesthesia. Um, therefore, our delta P value is going to change if we're, if we're going to measure it intraoperatively. It may be spuriously lowered um, compared to when the patient is awakened uh, in post-op. So it's just something to keep in mind. We need to recognize this difference. If we're in the OR, we're going to measure, let's say we're going to measure the compartment pressures interoperatively. Um, you know, it may be lowered. The delta peak values may be lowered to compare to uh, what it may be if we're going to calculate it preoperatively or postoperatively. Um, so this paper is saying, hey, it's something to keep in mind.
Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it is valuable and, and it comes into play um, uh, more than you'd think. So, so if you're, let's say um, you're, you're concerned about compartment syndrome, you kind of don't think about it and you're looking at this guy and you're doing your, your, um, your needle pressure monitoring. And then you know that, Hey, if you talk to anesthesia, you get their diastolic blood pressure it's pretty close with are you gonna should we be basing this all off of the the intra-op anesthesia blood pressure measurement uh, should we be unzipping a lot more people or sorry doing a fasciotomy on, on a lot more people well not we just have to think about it right so it could be it could be lowered so we could look at the preoperative blood pressure into consideration um but the intraoperative we just need to think about that it's going to be lower so there's some cases that we're not necessarily is, is what i'm saying yeah, you know, exactly right. And then and exactly, we want to look at the preoperative values. And so when we're talking about diagnosing compartment syndrome, it's really important that we that we take a look at the preoperative diastolic. Um, say we're going through and there's some, all of a sudden you're having some increased concern for um, compartment syndrome. So you go ahead and strike them while you have them on the table. You need to look at their preoperative diastolic in order to make that that diagnosis. We know from some very various um, studies that we're talking about the concern for compartment syndrome and prolonged ischemia causing muscle death. Four hours of ischemia, muscles respond pretty well from. And, and it's only once we start getting to six hours, uh, you start seeing some irreparable and uh, tissue ischemia, death, uh, necrosis, fibrosis, um, and certainly by eight hours. And, and hopefully it's not taking us that long to, to do a tibial nail, though, of course, different cases are, are of course, challenging. Um, so yes, we want to be looking at the preoperative diastolic when we're, when we're making these decisions for compartment syndrome. Um, you could kind of consider a little bit of what the post-operative, if they're going to remain intubated and sedated, that might also uh, keep their diastolic a little bit lower, but of course we can do different things while they're uh, in the ICU in order to address. So yeah, exactly right, Nick. Uh, my, my question was going to be, um, you know, for these two guys, you know, what are we going to be looking at? And you're, you nailed it. It's for both of them. We're looking at the preoperative diastolic value in order to, to make the diagnosis and the, um, to determine what our, our, uh, plan's going to be right on. Good work guys. Here we go. Another, another compartment syndrome down. Look forward to talking about some specific fractures with you guys.